0: First, to some very contemporary dilemmas now and to a new book called Time to Think, which thoroughly investigates the rise and fall of the UK's flagship gender service for children. The Gender Identity Development Service, which is based at the respected Tavistock Clinic in North London, was initially set up to provide, for the most part, talking therapies to young people who were questioning their gender identity. But in the last decade, it's referred more than a thousand children, some as young as nine years old, for medication to block their puberty. Well, to walk us through the findings of three years' research charting this story, I'm pleased to welcome Hannah Barnes, a journalist with the BBC's Newsnight program and author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Welcome to Saturday Extra.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Tell us why you decided to write this book, please.
1: Well, I had, as you say, I'd started this investigation at BBC Newsnight with my colleague Deborah Cohen, and we did sort of four films, four quite lengthy films, sort of 12 and a half minute type things, um, and written a series of articles and a radio documentary. But it got to the point where I just knew too much, and I felt that there had to be a written definitive record of what had taken place and I think here in the UK and I imagine the same is true there in Australia, you know, there's, if you're the average partly engaged layperson, you might think that there's no disagreement amongst clinicians about how to best care for this group of often vulnerable and distressed young people. And where there is disagreement that that might be motivated by transphobia, but, but really nothing could be further from the truth. And I think, you know, that there really, where there is a really weak evidence base underpinning a treatment and a rapid shift in both the numbers and the type of young people presenting to these gender clinics, it's important that the debate if you like comes out of those clinics and into society and that's not a debate i have to stress about trans people or the right to transition like we have never questioned that and i certainly never questioned that in the book and you know i've spoken to people who are really happy with the service they received at jids and they're now you know living as happy trans adults but some things have gone wrong and some people have been harmed as well so you know it's not just about the trans community it's about children <sighs>
0: And by the sound of it, practices too. Like your book centres around this uh, gender identity service at the Tavistock. Mm. Um, it was set up in nineteen eighty nine. Who runs it?
1: So, well, to start with, it was it was it was opened by a child and adolescent psychiatrist called Domenico De Um and it was very very tiny in the early years, and actually was a different. A hospital in London, but um, it, it sort of gradually grew, and then in the two thousand and tens, it was it was run out of the Tavistock and Portman Trust, um, and its head from two thousand and nine has been a, a lady called Polly Carmichael. But you know, it's part um, the way our healthcare system is structured here. We have a, a, a number of hospital trusts, which are all part of our central National Health Service. So it's it's part of the National Health Service. Um, and that, I think, has what's surprised people is that, uh, you know, a review of this whole area of healthcare care is, is, is underway at the moment. But in its interim findings, uh, the woman who's undertaken it, a very respected paediatrician called Dr. Hilary Cass, has said that this has not been subject to the level of oversight that we would expect when innovative treatments are...
0: This is the gender service. Yeah,
1: exactly, are are given to children. Um, There just hasn't been the level of scrutiny that one would expect.
0: Give us a bit of context. Uh, As you say, in 2007, this this small group uh, clinic was seeing about 50 children a year. Mm. And then by 2019, it was getting thousands of referrals every year. I mean, what happened? Why the increase? Do, Do we know yet?
1: I think that's the $64 million question. Um, there are lots of answers to that. I think it's really difficult to pin it on one thing. You know, the, the service itself has said, you know, perhaps it's due to increased acceptance of trans people and it being easier to, to, to come out, as it were. Um, and I think I have spoken to some young people for whom that that might be the case. But I really don't think that explains the really rapid increase. Um, clinicians that have worked in the service have, have put forward a number of hypotheses, if you like, and and certainly this chimes with some of the young people I've spoken to as well, you know, the influence of friendships and sort of social influences. Um, many young people were very unhappy about being gay and they'd been bullied for, for, for being in same-sex relationships or, or, or being attracted to, to other people. Uh, members of their own sex and and didn't like that and 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 sometimes found it easier to identify as trans and i know that's that's really sort of a quite difficult thing to comprehend but but you when know, i heard that story over and over again um i think for for the girls in particular i mean it's quite hard being a teenage girl puberty can be quite distressing and particularly if you're not you know uber feminine in in the world that we live in now it's really It can be difficult, and I think for 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 many young people, some of whom told me that they were having really quite severe mental health problems just prior to their trans identification, and um, it was it was a way of understanding their unhappiness. And that's not to say that obviously um, some people, you know, obviously some people identify as trans and and they are trans and, and will be as adults. So I think it's just a whole multitude of things, really, not, not one thing that explains this this rapid increase.
0: Well, you certainly do lay it out carefully. I mean, there was a shift, this important shift in who was being referred yeah. with, because it, it was more bo- young boys, wasn't it? That's right. And then the largest group are now registered as females exactly. presenting for treatment in their teens between 12 and 14.
1: Hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. So you had this Absolute rise in the in the overall number of referrals, but as you say, a complete shift in the demographics, if you like, of the young people being referred. So, um, the existing, albeit limited, evidence base tends to apply to largely birth registered males, boys who have had their gender incongruence since since childhood, and it's persisted. Whereas what gender clinics across the world have seen is a shift from those boys with lifelong gender incongruence to a preponderance of girls whose gender distress has only begun after the onset of puberty and adolescence. And often these these teenage girls have many other difficulties that they're contending with as well, um, depression, anxiety, perhaps eating disorders. Uh, and here in the UK, certainly some of them had, had suffered quite traumatic backgrounds as well. Um, and I think what the and I think this is why the concern really began, because a pretty weak evidence base to start with was then being applied to a completely different group of people for whom we really had no evidence that the medical pathway worked. And really these clinicians just said, don't we need to be a bit more cautious?
0: Uh, autism also featured quite a bit, didn't
1: it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, the the only data we have from that is from uh, a paper that the Gender Identity Development Service published back in 2018. And they they said that 35% of the young people they were seeing uh, exhibited moderate to severe autistic traits. So that's not quite an autism diagnosis, but it was on another measure that they were using. And it's certainly something that you know uh, the dozens of clinicians i've spoken to have said uh, i mean and that's that is incredibly high if you compare that to the population level uh, certainly here in, in in the uk it's around two percent so again it just prompted this question do we need to think a bit more here is something else going on not it's not possible for an autistic person to be trans of course of course they can be but do we need to slow down a bit
0: you also say i think that some people um wanted to um transition to other ethnicities too as well as um different gender which suggests just a very troubled people doesn't it
1: yeah exactly exactly and and those cases were very rare i don't i don't want to imply that that there were many but but yes in in, in they there were a few of those cases and it's striking that I'm told by, by clinicians who have gone on the record, used their names, that even in those cases where a young person not only identified as another gender but as another race or another ethnicity, those things would be treated separately and not as a you know so so the the, the gender transition could continue, um, not taking into account that as you say, perhaps this person is actually might be quite unwell if if they're thinking that they're also another race.
0: My guess is Hannah Barnes, and she's written this very thought-provoking book called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Now, as I said, initial, some were very young children, um, and initially the clinic was providing talking, talk therapy, but this changed, didn't it? And this is a very important transition, is it not?
1: Yeah, it was. So it's important. So it did always, well, for a very long time, it did provide medical treatments, um, what we what we know colloquially as puberty blockers, but only to young people who were sixteen. Um, so you you had pretty much gone through puberty by then. So so they did that for very many years, um, but in twenty eleven, um, under sort of pressure from. Well, from from trans groups, from endocrinologists, from from others working in in this field of, of gender healthcare, they embarked on a on a research study, uh, which was the right thing to do because they said, look, we've we, we've got this group of small number of really really distressed young people, and there's this treatment, puberty blockers, that we think might help. Um, you know, there's some studies coming out of the Netherlands, and they look really persuasive, but. The the data aren't conclusive, and and you know the, there isn't very much of it. So so we need to do a research study to see whether you know these these promising findings are are borne out. And so that's what they did, which was the right thing to do, albeit not a terribly robust study design. But then extraordinarily, rather than wait for any data or any meaningful data to come back from that study, they simply rolled out the early blocking of puberty. Uh, in 2014 as, as sort of a, a matter of course and uh, the, the study which was small which was 44 young people aged 12 to 15 uh, then what, what JIDS did was they removed the lower age limit altogether so providing a young person had started puberty something called Tanner stage 2 which is very early stages of puberty um, they could potentially be eligible to be referred for puberty blockers uh, and and within you know, a couple of years, there were 200 or so referred. And uh, as you said earlier on, well over 1,000 have been referred. Um, I mean, this is the striking thing. We don't actually have the data. It's not been in the public domain. But I would, from what is in the public domain, I think it's around 1,800, possibly a few more um, under 18s. But yes, to roll something out without any evidence base was, was a, a remarkable decision, really. And for, the, and for the NHS to allow them to do it was remarkable.
0: Did you come to any other conclusions about, you know, just the sheer pressure on the system or, I mean, was, dare I ask, was money being made from this?
1: Um, not in the way that some have hinted, you know, like there's no, people talk about big pharma and stuff. I found absolutely you know no evidence of that but but I think that's unique to our health system and the the Tavistock trust itself um the proportion of income that that gender services brought into the trust grew quite rapidly um, um over time from about two thousand and fifteen onwards now that's not to say that there was any malice or ill intent involved but 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 many clinicians brought up the fact that the trust was in a quite precarious financial position anyway and to lose the income that, that that Jid's brought in might have been very, very difficult. And, you know, that came from people who spoke very favourably of the service itself as well as those who were critical. So it, there's, a, there's a sense that it, it may have allowed the leadership to be blinkered was the word that, that one used, But but I don't want to imply that it was, you know, sort of ruthless intent or anything like that. But in terms of pressure, I mean, yeah, I mean... <laughs> The the, the failings of of JIDS are not solely its fault. I mean, the problem in many cases was, well, they were overwhelmed by the numbers completely. But what we found and what the independent review of uh, care provided to to gender distressed children has has found so far here in, in, in the UK is that in so many cases, the other difficulties that these young people were experiencing were simply overlooked. Now, JIDS would say that they weren't, they weren't commissioned to to, to to provide holistic treatment to these young people. They were a gender service and they were there to deal with the gender difficulties. And it was for other, you know, more localised mental health services for young people to deal with the other stuff. But the problem was that simply didn't happen. And potentially many young people got a treatment that they, they wouldn't benefit from and, and perhaps needed something else. And you know, have been let down by the adults that were meant to help them.
0: yes, would seem so. I mean, it is being shut this year. That's the plan. I think it's got seven thousand five hundred waiting. <laughs> what finally led to people standing up and and taking notice?
1: Well, that's disputed here, um as you can imagine, it's a very contentious area of um of debate um, but I mean really. S- several things i mean we had they they were inspected by our healthcare regulator and, and found to be inadequate um both in terms of leadership and and other factors and and it pointed to you know a lack of record keeping, um informed consent not being taken, um risk not being adequately managed, no proper record of how clinical decisions are made. It was a really damning report. And we've also had, as I've I've mentioned a few times, sorry to sound like a broken record, this this independent review, which called for a fundamentally different model of care. And it's really those two things, and, and I, I would say that our reporting at Newsnight sort of influenced both of those quite quite heavily, that, that have made the National Health Service say that we need a fundamentally different approach here. We need more services because it's clear that one clinic cannot serve all of England and Wales. It's crazy. So we need more. We need them closer to where these young people live. We need to provide more than one treatment pathway. It cannot be that, you know, while medical transition will work for some, it will not work for all. And just as there are different ways kind of into young people's gender-related distress. There's got to be different ways out of it as well. So these new services are going to be more holistic. There's going to be much more mental health support. Um, There's going to be specialists in autism and neurodiversity and in safeguarding. So the idea is, you know, one one national service cannot work, but, but also the model it's used has failed so it's it's kind of a combination of things um, but as you say more than seven and a half thousand young people waiting waiting for years with no help whatsoever it's it's not a great situation by by anyone's judgment
0: look when you decided to write this book, you initially I understand had some difficulties finding a publisher. Can you tell us about that please
1: so I wrote a very detailed book proposal it's about seventeen thousand words um and it set out very clearly you know what what the book would be like and what it wouldn't be like you know it, it it was an evidence-based robust fair um approach just just as just as i'd done at the bbc um you know not not questioning trans people and it was really striking because it was sent to 22 publishers um none of whom gave a negative response at all so 12 responded and all were very positive and said, this is a very important story. Um, you've got to tell it, but essentially not with us. Um, and, uh, you know, a variety of reasons were given. And 10 didn't reply at all, which my, my agent tells me is very, very strange. Um, so it was pretty demoralising. Um, and then the 23rd Swift Press, thankfully, did agree to take it on. And, um, you know, here we are. But, um, yeah, it was a it's, – it's strange – Sort of a lack of bravery in the in the publishing industry, for sure. It was it was shocking.
0: And I mean, what are other countries doing? Because this has really reverberated, hasn't it, around the world? What mm. what are some other key countries oh, yeah, doing? Oh,
1: absolutely. Well, both Sweden and Finland um, have sort of rode back a bit again. So those physical interventions are available, but but are, but with far more caution. And it's talking therapies that, that are the first. Line of treatment if you like so it's and and, you know extensive talking therapy and again sort of going back to the original principles that that young people have to be sort of quite psychologically stable before you know commencing physical treatment France have also issued a, a note of caution over this and it's really interesting that in the three countries that have actually undertaken a systematic review of the evidence base Sweden Finland and, and here in England um, they have all found it to be wanting and 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 as a result have sort of started to proceed on a more cautious footing because we' really I think what's happened in this area of healthcare as so many clinicians have told me is that the word gender has kind of muddied the waters and they've proceeded on a basis where, you wouldn't usually in medicine. The evidence base has has remained quite quite weak, and even WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare, which is is generally the more you know affirmative approach the, to to fit to physical transition for for young people, even they totally accept that the existing studies that the, the best data we have are these two studies from the Netherlands, and actually. They apply to a rather different group of young people to the majority being seen by gender clinics across the world now. So, you know, I think I think there is starting to be a shift. There's a big article published overnight in the British in the uh, British Medical Journal, the um, the BMJ, um, precisely talking about this. That you know, clinical disagreement over how best to care for this very diverse, often distressed young people is actually increasing. Disagreement is increasing um, because we're starting to see that it, it, it hasn't benefited some. So, so, you know, perhaps there need to be changes in approach.
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for putting so much effort into your work. Thank you very much, Hannah Barnes.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: And Hannah's an investigative journalist with the BBC and the author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. It's published by Swift press. Uh, In Australia prepubescent children with gender dysphoria are treated with talking therapies. Once the child enters puberty uh, puberty blockers may be part of their treatment. Gender reassignment surgery is generally only undertaken in adults and if you'd like to go to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne they have some more information on their website and if you or your child would like more information Kids Helpline can be reached on 1800 55 1800. You can also access more information from the group Transcend, which can be found at transcend.org.au. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.